Hello, I'm Jake Duke, and I'm here to serve you with the information you need to understand what being an agriculture educator is all about. Throughout this series, you will learn about the different parts that make up high school agriculture education. Welcome to the Ag Teacher Feast. Let's dig in. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ag Teacher Feast. Today, we're going to be talking about rural versus suburban versus urban ag programs. This is the salad course. Now, why is it the salad? You know, when you're making a salad, you have all these different ingredients, and you may make it from someone else differently, or how what you put in there, or things of that, like that. But guess what? It's still a salad. Well, that's what these ag programs that we're going to talk, look at today are all about. They may have different types of students, different types of labs, different types of instruction, but they're all still ag programs. And the whole goal of this is to show you that even though you may be teaching in, in an urban school that you're not really used to that type of environment, it's still an ag program. It's still all about the agriculture and that your students that are going to be in there, you can still teach them and give them a passion for agriculture. And then maybe you're going to a rural school and these students already have a lot of knowledge about agriculture. Well, you may be able to teach them something new that they may have learned, you know, growing up or how they did it, where they're from or things like that. But you may be able to teach them something that they didn't know and get them a new perspective on agriculture. So what are we going to do today? Well, today we have three interviews. So this one's going to, this episode may be a little, just a little bit longer or a little more lengthy than you're used to. So we're going to look at three different interviews. And we, I sort of set it up to do a little bit of research study, you know, just a little mini, tiny little thing that we could use to compare different schools. These three schools are all within two counties of each other. They're all surrounding or in Nashville. One is in Eagleville, which is a rural area out in Rutherford County uh, near the bottom southern half of it. Next, we're going to look at Smyrna High School which is a suburb of Nashville. And then we're going to look at McGavick High School, which is located in the Metro uh, National Public Schools Davidson County School District. And so these three schools are going to give us a sort of idea of how, they, how they're different, but then we're going to still see what similarities they have. And it's all in this little contained area, so it, these schools are very similar in uh, what they teach and things of like that. So... It's going to be a little different. We're not going to do as much of me talking today. But we're going to get to hear from three different teachers. And I'm going to show you some of the similarities and differences between the interviews after we go through all of them. We go through all the highlights of the interviews. At the end, we're going to look back and see what was similar and what was different. So let's get started with the first interview. Okay, now we have Miss Marshall, who is a teacher at Eagleville School in Rutherford County. It is a rural school, and so we're going to hear some perspectives about uh, rural school, and then we'll see how it compares to the suburban and urban schools. So let's get started with the first question. Um, how would you describe the diversity in your classroom? The diversity in my classroom, um, 
for a rural school kind of goes all the way across the spectrum. Um, when you're looking at the student base, um, I have students that, you know, operate a thousand acre farms and I have students that come from the subdivision across the street on a quarter of an acre lot. So I get a lot of diversity when it comes to their agriculture background and involvements. Um, the cultural diversity at our school is not real prevalent. Um, we basically have, I think, less than 1% um, of other. So basically 99% Caucasian is our school's background as far as um, the different cultures we have. Uh, very rarely do I have a student who speaks another language in my classroom. Um, very rarely do I have a student that even needs an EA for some kind of special education assistance. And then as far as the um, economic diversity in my classroom, it's probably still similar to a lot of other schools, just in the fact that even though we're in a rural setting and we may not have as much, much cultural engagement, we still have a lot of diverse background when it comes to like the socioeconomic standards because you do still have um, your lower income families along with your higher end income families in the same school setting. Um, and then as far as the academic diversity of my classroom, that is probably the most varied. Uh, again, with it being an ag classroom, you get students who uh, love agriculture and really want to do something hands-on and so I will have you know a phenomenal agriculture student that comes from a huge farming operation but almost can't read or write on you know a seventh grade level even though he is in the high school and then I'll get students that are extremely gifted uh, they'll be in the spectrum program you know valedictorians and things like that these students will all be in the same classroom so the academic diversity is probably one of the hardest diverse aspects of my classroom. And that's pretty much uh, all the different phases of my class as far as diversity goes. Um, you mentioned that you have a lot of students who come from background in agriculture. Do you have maybe a rough estimate at the percentage that come from background in agriculture? Okay, so I went through my rosters and kind of looked at my students knowing which students either uh, have a farm, have a family member who farms, you know, because I have a lot of students who have grandparents that still farm, um, or they do a job currently, you know, that's engaged in agriculture. And so I'm pretty close to about 50% of my students have some kind of engagement or involvement with agriculture, whether through their own family, through a family member of some kind. Um, let's move on to actual instruction in your classroom. What sort of lab spaces do you have for instruction? So I have a classroom with an office. My classroom has kind of a lab set up for um, different counters, sinks, and things like that. It, at one time had been a science classroom, maybe even a, a home economics classroom. And so the counter spaces and the areas with sinks and stuff are kind of used as an animal science lab for now for small animals. And so we have around 50 small animals in my classroom, give or take, depending on, you know, how healthy things are or if we've just had uh, a new crop birthed in like a daisy cage. But we keep about 50 small animals. Um, I also have setups for um, different science aspects, such as like microscopes, microscope setups, um, 
different equipment that we can use with those such as slides or beakers so that we can kind of make our own mixtures. Um, we also have outdoors at the school are two different greenhouses. One is um, just a long open, basically your growing house. And then the other greenhouse was designed with the intentions of being a hydroponics or an aquaponics greenhouse. So we do have a fish tank where you could house tilapia or any other kind of uh, crop that you would like to grow, as well as some setups in there for doing um, hydroponics growth. And so we can also use some parts of that second greenhouse as a growing greenhouse too. And then we also, with the other ag teacher, have an ag mechanic shop that our program is able to utilize. Um, let's say that if you wanted to uh, like build an animal barn or something like that would there be available space around campus for you to do that we do have available space and that's actually being talked about um, there is an area behind some of the sports fields where there was always a pavilion that you know was just put behind the baseball fields for some reason the pavilions rarely ever used and it's kind of an area of campus where you either have to bush hog it or mow in extreme amounts because it's just a lot of open land but it's not a usable land for any other kind of sports facility because it is sort of low um, and, and it has a tendency to hold water and can be uh, some issues with drainage so we've actually talked recently about turning that into a small farm area um, and so the problem is it's just a little bit far away from the school but you know that's also good too, because you don't necessarily want it right up next to the building. And then aside from that, I do have the ability out in my greenhouse lot. I've actually housed uh, sheep, goats, cattle, and chickens before. Um, and I do have calf hutches out there. So I keep, a, and I've had a pig too, I forget that. Um, but I keep an area out there that is fenced and contained um, so that if I want to bring livestock on campus, I have the opportunity to. Um, being in your school, only two ag teachers, what programs of study do you offer and why those programs? So when I moved to the school, the school was strictly uh, plant science and ag business. So the teacher I replaced was a plant science pathway. The other ag teacher teaches the ag business path. Um, since then, we've actually grown. I love animals and I think that that offers a whole new you know, set of skills to your students. It also is huge recruitment for your program because, you know, veterinary science is one of those careers that a lot of students want to go into. Very few of them will make it, but they still have that passion or interest in it. And so I added the program in vet science so that we could try to recruit a new pool of students to the program. Um, it didn't really hurt my schedule because I was teaching, I think, five uh, plant classes and then an agri-science class. And so some of my plant classes were duplicates. And so instead of duplicating those courses, I now have a small animal science and a veterinary science. And some years it just depends. Sometimes I have, you know, my intro agri-science classes every year. Some years I'll have two plant science classes and three animal science classes based on the need. And then some years it'll flop where, you know, I'll duplicate and have two greenhouse management based on the need. And then the other ag teacher just brought back last year, the ag mechanics pathway to our school. And so we're in the second year of that pathway being offered too. So even though we're a small school, um, you know, less than 350 students in the whole high school, 
we have two ag teachers and we offer four pathways. So that's pretty good. Um, in your in your school, how integral is the ag program to the actual culture of your school? I think because we are a rural school and it's a K through 12 school and we have a lot of um, repeat family customers, um, you know, there's students in the program whose parents went through the program. There's students in the school whose parents worked in the school. So the culture of our school is really unique or different anyways, because it is a smaller school in a kind of homier community. And you do have a lot of the same people um, work there, their kids go to school there, they live there. So the ag program kind of fits that same aspect just because you have so many people that were you know, former FFA members and now their kids are coming through and they want their kids to be involved in ag or do FFA. Um, some other things that I think it's really integral and a lot of that has started since um, I moved to the school. I loved the opportunity to do any kind of ag outreach to younger students. And so whenever I had been in another school that was just a, you know, standard high school setting, we used to visit elementary schools off campus all the time so that, you know, we could do ag literacy or so that we could do, um, you know, plant science educational lessons or so that we could visit with the animals and, you know, talk about um, whether it's, you know, animal habitats or it's how animals survive and just do, you know, basically a lot of hands-on things with younger students. Well, now I don't have to leave campus. It's right there in the building. And so we do a, a lot of different things. If it's Ag Literacy Week, if it's Read Across America Week, you know, we send students down to read to the elementary um, multiple times throughout the year. We take students and animals and we'll go visit classrooms. Um, and, you know, a, an example would be the third grade standard has uh, something to do with adaptation in animals. And that's kind of a consistent thing every year that we know is gonna come up in third grade curriculum. And so I'll take animals to their classrooms that have adaptations that we have in our small animal setting so that after those students have learned that they can actually see the real animal and they can hear my students teach them about the adaptations that their animals have. Um, we bring students down to the greenhouse for the same thing. If they're covering photosynthesis then that teacher can shoot me an email and say, hey, can I bring my first graders down? We just talked about photosynthesis. And so the ag students will do like a really good lesson on photosynthesis and action right there in the greenhouse. And so I, I think it's really essential to that culture of the school and that engagement and just the fact that, you know, those older kids really enjoy teaching the younger kids. It's almost crazy how much they love it. And then it kind of goes both ways. Those little kids love to see those big kids who, you know, they show up and watch them play football or come to a basketball game, but then they also just help them plant a flower for their mom. And so they kind of like look up to them a little bit anyways. And it's just, it's a really unique setting to be able to do that. So I think it's very instrumental to the culture of the school. Um, what are the most common types of SAEs that your students do? Okay, so if you're looking at the broad spectrum of SAEs, most of my students' SAEs are either placement or school-based. And that's basically because they're either working on a farm or working somewhere um, for their placement or they don't have an SAE. And so I'll utilize them for some school-based activities, whether it's you know taking care of plants over Christmas, um, you know helping plant mums in the summer, working with the animals outside of school and things like that. 
Um, as far as the different areas, we do have a lot of students that do farm. So I feel like we have a lot of different livestock SAEs. Um, thanks to, you know, Lucky Lad Farms, we actually get a lot of the agritourism. So the students that are either doing uh, ag business, they may actually be doing outdoor recreation if they're working the camps at Lucky Lad. So that's another area. Um, and then, you know, typically in a high school setting, you get a lot of uh, landscape management SAEs because, you know, I have a lot of male students that already have their own landscape and business and, you know, mow yards and things like that. So those would probably be my most common types of essays. Um, how does being in your rural setting, in rural school, affect the perceptions of your ag program, either from the administration, the students at school who aren't in ag, or just like the general public? Um, so my own children go to the school and after years of being there with them and watching them, um, you know, I knew when I moved to this school that, like I'd said, the culture was really different and just the kind of program that they had was way more accepted than, you know, trying to recruit students to a really urban uh, ag program. Uh, but it still is kind of prevalent. Just I get tickled with my own daughter and her friends, you know, when I was talking to them in middle school about taking ag or even my son's friends who still aren't in high school you know, I, I get the jokes or I get the, well, you know, I'm not a country kid or I don't farm, so I probably can't take your classes, Miss Marshall. And so it's, it's just kind of funny because I didn't really think that it was as bad at a rural school that has a lot of ag around it as it was at, you know, the urban schools that I've taught at in the past. And it's probably not as bad, but it still exists. Um, you know, we do have good administrative support. And I think as long as you do a really good job of promoting your program the right way. You're doing things on a daily basis in your classroom and you're providing things for that school that the school needs because, you know, as an administrator, there's a lot of, you know, boxes they have to check off too. And so if you're bringing, you know, some of those industry certifications, if you're bringing some post-secondary opportunities, if you're doing a good job having your kids, you know, be positive role models in the community, in the school, if when your principal comes down to your room, your students are engaged in doing something like it's, to me, it is easy to have administrative support, whether it's rural or urban. It's all about, you know, what you do with your program. Um, and then as far as, you know, the community and the outside perceptions, I think because we are a small community and we have a lot of these repeat people, um, you know, that their kids are now in school, they do expect it to probably be more like a 1970s, 1980s ag program than the 2021 version of FFA and ag today. Um, you know, I'll, I'll have a dad stop me at a football game wanting to know why their kids in their first year of ag. Um, and I haven't taught them how to weld yet. And I'm like, well, they usually do that in ag mechanics. Um, and so they're used to the ag that they grew up in, where it was the, you know, country boy ag. Um, everybody was doing stuff in the shop. You know, you were going and visiting farms in the middle of the school day and things like that. And it's a little different. And so there's definitely even a perception change from those who went through the program. Um, gosh, even in my 20 plus years since I've graduated, a lot changed from the ag that I teach to the ag that I took myself in high school. So. All right, well, uh, just wanna thank you for coming on and 
telling us about a rural perspective on ag programs. And now we'll get back to the rest of the podcast. We just received a lot of great information about rural programs. Let's go over the highlights. From this interview, we saw that there's still diversity in the classroom in a rural environment. It may be in a different way with a social economical standpoint or even academic standpoint. However, there's not as much cultural diversity in this classroom. Also, for lab instruction spaces, there's plenty of space in different areas like a small animal lab, greenhouses, and a shop. And there's also space on the campus for them to expand and build more lab spaces. Additionally, we saw that, you know, even though it's in, in a rural environment, there's still perceptions of what it should and shouldn't be. Students in the school still think that even though they may not be, even though they're from not from a farm, that means that they can't be in the ag program. And also there's people who have uh, gone through ag a long time ago, and they still expect it to be the same as it is the same type of old good farm boy country time. Uh, ag program, even though it may have changed since then, and there may be different things that we're teaching about ag than what was taught 20 years ago, which makes sense because ag is always evolving into whatever the world needs it to be. So, now we've heard a rural perspective, we're going to move on to the suburban perspective. So, let's get to that interview. So hello, uh, this is Miss Wilburn. Uh, she is a teacher at Smyrna High School in Middle Tennessee. Um, it is a suburban high school, so we're going to see how that uh, differs from the rural and urban school interviews that we have already done, or that we will do also. Uh, so we'll get started. So why don't you just go ahead and describe the amount of diversity in your classroom? That is a wonderful question, especially for Smyrna High School. Um, we have quite a bit of diversity, especially I mean, at our school, especially in our ag program. Um, when you think of an agriculture program, you think of, you know, you think of your traditional ag kids. Um, but our kids are very, very diverse. Even our officer team is very diverse. Um, we have kids from every, tons of countries. Um, we have, you know, quite a few races. We have students from all walks of life um, in our classroom and people are always surprised by that um, and I always love taking kids on field trips too because we have such different students that we take different places um, but we do have a very diverse group of students um, I think our ESL population is the highest in the county at Smart High School um, and you know I, I feel very privileged for that it's, it's a very interesting and fun place to work because of our diversity um so since you have so many different types of kids in your classroom could you have a general percentage of your class that actually comes from a background in agriculture yes we probably have about one to two percent of our students that have a background in agriculture um there's just not very many where we are in Rutherford County that actually have a background in agriculture, especially being where we're located in Smyrna. Um, not a lot of them do have a background in agriculture. Some of them, you know, they've worked on family farms or they volunteer at like a horse barn on the weekend, whatever the case may be, but not many of them have a true background 
in agriculture. Um, why don't you describe the types of labs that you have available for your classroom instruction? Yeah, um, so I, I know this question will come later, but we have, we've got um, an animal science program and then we've got a plant science program and I'm the plant science teacher. Um, right now we have got one large greenhouse where we do all of our um, soil-based growing. And then we've got a smaller greenhouse as well that's attached to our ag shop. Um, that one is more for hydroponic and aquaponic growing. Um, and then we do have a, a pretty large, it's called the ag mechanics shop. We don't teach ag mechanics anymore. We use it for uh, plant science labs. We use it for animal science labs. We don't really use it for ag mechanics anymore. There are like welding booths and tool rooms, um, but I'm trying to get them set up right now to do like hydroponic growing labs inside of where the welding booths were. Um, we've also got like a dog grooming station set up inside of the shop um, where she, she does all the dog grooming and the dog boarding and stuff like that. Um, and then down the hallway, we have also got a small animal care lab um, where she just keeps a variety of animals, you know, the types of animals that you keep. She also uh, broods chicks and stuff down there. So she's got like a little chick area that she does for the chicks. And then in one of our courtyards at Smyrna High School, it's kind of laid out weird. So we have four courtyards at Smyrna High School and we've kind of just taken one of them as our own. And so we've made it the ag courtyard um, where we do plant science labs out there. We've got a compost pile out there. And then we also have some of our chickens during the year, we move them to the courtyard. So we do have really good lab facilities. We're pretty lucky at Smyrna High School with the amount of things that we have. So I can't complain. So uh, going off that, if you, you mentioned that you're converting like your uh, shops into different like types of labs, would, is that because you may not have the space to actually build labs outside like the school area? Is it a very oh, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Um, we are a lot of pavement at Smyrna High School. Um, and so we don't really have the outside space to put a lot of different things like I would love to put another greenhouse up but I really don't know where I would put another greenhouse up um, we just don't have the space outside and one of the things that I kind of try to focus on with my students because again when we talk about suburban students who honestly are more urban based who don't have an ag background a lot of things that I like to focus with them is like sustainable agriculture precision agriculture like things that are more urban, urban-based agriculture with them. So I want to show them the differences, not just here's what you're gonna do on a farm, here's the type of things that you can do in agriculture that relate to your background and where you're from. It's not just necessarily, you know, we're gonna plant these row crops and this is what we're gonna do because we don't have the space, we don't have the facilities and these kids have never been around that. So I want to show them the technology side of agriculture. And so I think that, you know, converting our labs inside to showing them things that they can do inside works well for their background as well. Um, you mentioned that you have a plant systems and animal systems program study at Smyrna. How did you choose those? Well, they were kind of chosen for us. Um, the animal science program has been there for I guess 10 years, 11, 12 years. I don't really remember. Um, but so yeah, that one's been there for about 12 years. And then the teacher that I replaced when I first came in, he did plant science and ag mechanics, which technically you're not really supposed to do if you don't have a full pathway. And I wanted 
Smyrna High School to have a full pathway of one or the other. So of course we went with plant science um, so we could have a full pathway of plant science. Um, how would you say that your, like your ag program, how integral is that to the culture of your school? Is, does it play a large part in the culture or is it not as prominent? I would say it's not as prominent as some of this, like when you think of, you know, when you think of rural schools like Cannon County, you know, they have those ag days and take your tractor to school day and stuff like that. Our program is just not like that. Our kids are just not like that. Um, now, of course, the kids in our program get into it and the kids in CTE, we can get a lot of students from CTE. I, I would say it's integral more so to our department than it is to our entire school. Because if you talk to just a regular academic student, they're going to have absolutely no idea what we do back there in the back of the school. And that's just that's just how it is. Um, so no, I wouldn't say it's too terribly integral. Now, when it comes to certain weeks, like we try to make it integral when we have you know National FFA week, we try to get the whole school involved. We do like trivia games and we have stuff on the announcements every day. Um, but we don't. It's not necessarily integral to the you know to the culture of the school. Uh, what are the most common types of SAEs that your students participate in? So, of course, mostly it's going to be placement. Um, and it's going to be placement um, either in our school labs. A lot of them just don't have the facilities at home. We've got a lot that live in apartments. Um, so a lot of them are just basic placement SAEs. Um, a lot of them work in our greenhouses. A lot of them come and take care of the chickens or the animals. Um, a lot of them have got animals at home. I would say we've probably got about three students that do an entrepreneurship SAE. Um, and they're, they're kind of different from your traditional entrepreneurship SAEs. They're not necessarily owning a farm and things like that. And then we do have a couple of research SAEs. And then we've had um, in the past that I can think of one or two of like those um, the community service-based ones, and I can't think of what they're called right now, um, but we've had a couple of the community service-based ones in the past as well. So ours, again, they're just a little bit different. They're more, they're not your traditional SAEs, living and working on a farm. That's just not what our students do. So we, we provide them opportunities during the year for their SAE. Um, and then of course, some of them do have things at home that they're interested in that they do. Um, being in a suburban school, does that affect how your program is perceived by like either the school, the administration, or just the general public? You know, I don't think so. Um, well, you know, when people think of agriculture, again, they think of your traditional ag kids, the people that live on a farm. So it is hard sometimes to kind of get away from that. Um, people, you know, think we're the, just the ag kids in the back of the school where we do a lot of science-based things. Um, but I think that our administration is very, very supportive. And I think for the most part, they understand what we do and they appreciate what we do. Um, and they're very supportive. Again, we've got some awesome labs. We, they don't really tell us no, which is a good thing. Um, and so, I, but again, I think working at Smart High School, we do have a really good culture at our school. And so... Of course, sometimes we are perceived as the ag people, but I think that the other departments, the administration, they understand what we do. And I think we've got a really good administration. And I also think we've got a really good CTE department from the county as well. All right, well, I just wanna say thank you for uh, coming on the podcast and um, giving us perspective into a suburban environment for ag education. Thank you, I appreciate it.
So now we've heard a lot about being in a suburban ag program. Let's go over the highlights. First off, it's important that we see that this classroom is very diverse compared to the rural classroom that we just heard about. This classroom has a lot of students from different backgrounds and different cultures, and a lot of them haven't had a background in agriculture. So it, what happens here is they focus on instruction that maybe pertains to what they would be doing in the field of agriculture and what they can do, even though they don't know about maybe rural standpoint, they can know what they can do in an urban environment. Also, the amount of lab spaces that are available to them are they have to get a little creative to what they're doing. In their shop that they don't use, they're going to convert it into something to do with plants. But they also have lots of lab spaces for small animal and they still have the enough, enough stuff to do for their program. However, if they wanted to build something, a different lab, for example, the greenhouse that was mentioned, there's not really room at the school for that. And so they really can't expand all the lab spaces that they have. So they have to get a little creative what, with what they're doing. The SAEs in this program are more placement based and more in the school because a lot of the students do not have jobs outside of the school that pertain to agriculture. Furthermore, the, the perceptions of their program they're still seen as maybe the ag kids. And that's still something that they have to combat, even though they know most of these students aren't from an ag background. So let's keep this going. We got one more interview to get through and then we'll be able to go over everything. It's time for the urban interview. So now on the podcast, we have uh, Ms. Lumpkins, who taught at McGavick High School in Nashville, which is a very urban school. And we thought it would be great to ask her these same questions that we asked the suburban and rural schools uh, so that we could see how they compare. So we'll get started here. Um, first off, how would you describe the amount of diversity in your classroom? Yeah, so teaching at McGavick High School in Nashville um, was a very diverse setting. We weren't necessarily inner city, but a lot of people, what I'd tell everyone is that we were one exit down from the Grand Old Opry. So, you know, a lot of people might assume that we were maybe kind of country because people might think of Nashville and, and that kind of thing. But if you know Nashville in that area, you know that uh, McGavick overall, the school was um, about 40% white, 40% black, and then a, a great mixture of so many other uh, backgrounds and cultures in the remaining leftover. And so that pretty much did translate into my classroom as well. Um, I had students who didn't speak English as their first language that were first year, you know, Americans. So uh, extremely diverse. I learned a lot about you know, the next generation of young people and just about what our country looks like now from all the diversity that was in my classroom, not just culturally uh, or racially, but even just in backgrounds and their, um, where they lied on the LGBTQ spectrum or, or other spectrums and things like that. So diversity in a lot of ways. Um, with the amount of diversity in classroom, what percentage of your class would you say actually came from a background in agriculture? Yeah, very little. Um, I mean, probably so small that it was hard to quantify, but, you know, if I had an average or running average, maybe about 5%, 10%. And, and when we're saying background in agriculture, you know, if we're thinking of maybe a more 
traditional, what people think of as an ag student, you know, a student who came from a farm, worked on a farm, lived on land, maybe more than an acre or two, that was very, very low. But surprisingly, I did have a lot of students who might've had a hand in some part of agriculture, but they didn't grow up with a barn in their backyard or, you know, showing cattle. A lot of students who might've, um, you know, got used to riding horses at their aunt's house, you know, in West Tennessee, or they had family friends out in the Midwest. And so they had seen chickens before. So that was also a good eye-opening experience to not assume that just because they're from the city, they may not have any experience in ag and they often would. And it was fun to teach through the curriculum and then get to the point where there was something that they were interested in or knew a background in and, and they really felt ownership over those things. Um, in your classroom, what sort of lab space did you have available for you to use instruction? I was really lucky. I had a really cool space at McGavick. So the school was built in the 70s and it was a comprehensive high school. And so it was already a little bit more of a different setup than a normal school. Uh, which you know, uh, but in my area at the end, so I had a, we actually were kind of a circle, if you can imagine it, we were a donut around a planetarium. So the planetarium was in the middle, which was a really neat little thing to, to have right there in our space. And then all of my space was around that. So I had, of course, our classroom, then we had two different labs that were attached that used to be greenhouses, and we converted them into a grooming lab and kind of a and when we say lab, it's important if, if somebody doesn't have a background, it was not an experimentation lab. We weren't, you know, doing anything inappropriate or untowards the animals, but it was our learning space, you know. So we had all of our scientific equipment in one where we could run experiments, uh, you know, do Petri dishes with auger plates and, and germs and see all that kind of thing. And then in the second lab, we had our indoor animals, so rabbits and other small animals. Uh, but we also had the benefit of having a pretty large outdoor space that eventually in my third, fourth year at McGavick, uh, sometime in 2016, we were able to build a $10,000 barn on the property. So then we also had outdoor animals. Um, and then we even had, you know, a pretty big storage area to, to rotate a lot of materials and equipment. So one of the benefits of being in an urban area, if there's ever anybody who is thinking about teaching in that kind of experience uh, even though we were a title one school, we actually received a pretty generous amount of funding essentially because we were a title one. So even though people might think of inner city or, or urban as like low income or don't have a lot of resources because we were in that situation, we did get a lot of equipment and materials and every year we were able to add to it. So we had, you know, rising and, and lowering, uh, lab grooming tables, like just like you would see at Petco or, and that was one of the biggest things about the, the, the facilities in general, it was always my goal to provide something that was as close to what they would see in a career as possible. Um, and I still have students text me now because I am out of the classroom at this point, but my former students will text me and say, you know, that maybe they're um, working in a grooming lab now or as a vet tech, or they're still in college and they're doing a dissection. And no matter what it is, they're like, oh, I'm familiar with this piece of equipment, or I already know how to do this skill and that you know that's what's really rewarding because that was my whole goal and having that big setup there uh on, a, on an already pretty big campus McGavick was 11 acres it, it was really helpful and so hopefully I did provide that experience to those students um being in the setting that you were what programs of study did you offer as an ag program McGavick High School and Nashville in general is under what's called an academy model 
And especially when I was there um, and an academy model of a high school is centered around CTE. It's like pretty much a CTE teacher's dream, especially ag teachers. So the academies are geared towards whatever those programs are. And then all of the gen ed is built around that. And so even though our campus was huge, we often were ranked as maybe the first or second largest high school in Tennessee. We had smaller little learning communities. So saying all that to say, we were in the community of life science and law. So we offered veterinary science as a pathway. And what was really neat is we could couple that with health sciences and then the law and criminal justice pathway and find connections to those. Uh, because sometimes those things were interchangeable. So it was neat to see a student who might've had interest in law enforcement, but they specifically wanted to work with canines. There were connections there. And then students who weren't sure what they wanted to do with health, but it might've been animals or, or people were able to exchange there. So. Uh, overall, that really supported just my pathway, which was vet science. So uh, freshmen would actually take agri-science upstairs with agri-science teachers that, that acted as their science teachers. Everybody in McGavick, whether they were going to go into my pathway or not, they took agri-science as their freshman credit. It was great. It was wonderful. Um, then they'd get to me sophomore year. They'd take small animal care. Junior year, they would take large animal care. And then senior year would be vet science. And I often supplemented a lot of those courses with the case curriculum, curriculum for agricultural science education, which is who I work for now, uh, which is an initiative offered by NAAE. And so I did um, everything I could to make it very inquiry based, very student focused, uh, very much, you know, we talked about the lab space, you know, once they knew where all the equipment was, I could give them an experiment or a lab and really empower them to get it done go find what they needed to get it done. And I was there to ask questions and essentially facilitate along the way so that it wasn't completely a, a lecture, sit and get class all the time. Right. Um, in your school, it's a large school. How integral was the ag program to the actual like, culture of the school? Was it like well-known or did like, how, how did it all play it together? That's a really good question, you know, and I, what I love is you could ask any ag teacher that, and it's such a different story. And sometimes it's a great story and sometimes it's a struggle. And I think we've all been in one of the struggles. So I did come in when it was struggling and there was not a culture of it being important at all. And had I not been hired, it wouldn't have even been continued. So for the first few years, it was an uphill battle, but I think that's, you know, ag teachers are always up for that kind of challenge because you can make a name for yourself and for your students and, and let your kids work speak for itself. So that's what happened. It took several years, you know, really got the buy-in of, of those students. And I always wanted to work in an urban place. When I learned about Corey Flournoy from Chicago High School of Ag Sciences, when I was in high school, I knew that that was the kind of program I wanted. So I knew it would work. And it took about four years, I think I started there in 13. In 2017, we were named one of the National Models of Excellence finalists. And we were the first one to be named that in Tennessee. Um, there's a Model of Innovation Award and, and that's been given out several times. But you know, that was what that means is we were one of the top overall chapters in, in the entire nation. We were able to go to national convention and showcase what we did. And so, you know, it kind of almost, we had to get that national level recognition to be taken seriously in the school. And if we hadn't shown our school how much that meant, how um, big of a deal that was, at least to us, then that's really what it took to show our school that we were a player in the national way and that, you know, they had something special down in our hallway. We always kind of contended with band. Our band had some glory years, especially, and they had a big, you know, alumni and, and uh, 
they did very well. And it was, you know, if kids did band, it's very similar to FFA. You've got to be all into that. And as much, you know, totally respect that because we do very similar things, but it was so restrictive that it was like, if you had a kid in the band, they probably couldn't go to national convention. If you had a kid in the choir, which our choir was really great and, you know, committed, that student would probably be losing a lot of sleep if they did both. And I had some great students that I had some chapter presidents, you know, that did double duty in these groups. But um, I would like to say that by the time that I left there, I, I would have hoped that we were a player just up there with the band and the chorus and the sports there too. Um, within your program, did, was it hard to find SAEs for your students or did, were they able to maybe do some things a little creatively? Like what, what was your most common SAE that you had? Yeah, that, that's probably the biggest struggle. And if there's anything that I can offer to anybody who's gonna go through that situation is that you can always make it work. So you, you just said creative, you know, you can be creative without losing the fidelity of what an SAE is and, and what it can be and what it can do for students. Um, my last full year there, my goal was to get 20 of my 2019, class of 2019 students, their state degree. And that year we had the most state degrees in Tennessee. And I think that would have surprised a lot of people because we were from urban chapter, but with the facilities that I described, there was no lack of students who were willing to work just our facilities alone. So I would say the majority of the students who had a substantial true SAE that did get them moved up the degree chain, they worked in our lab. They worked in the barn. They came, um, you know, in the summer, we would have one person assigned to each day of the week. So we'd have a Tuesday summer person, a Wednesday summer person. We also appointed as part of our officer team, a lab manager. And in some years, we even had a lab manager and a barn manager just so that they could coordinate those students. And so, you know, that goes into even just ag communications, ag leadership, even ag education as an SAE, even though they were in the barn, you know, part of it was more about their management of the rest of the people in the barn. So we made it work. And when a student would work, you know, and they'd just say, I, I want hours, we'd kind of put them somewhere. And then maybe they would say, uh, well, can I do this instead? Or, you know, I might put them working with the bunnies, but then they had something that they want to improve with the chickens. And so it would constantly evolve too. And that was one of the things is like being able to identify with students where they wanted to go and set those goals. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this when I knew that we would chat about SAEs. And I remember the coolest one, or at least one of the, the most fun that I really thought pulled in this other group of students that I had that liked ag and they loved FFA, but they probably were never going to pursue a career directly in agriculture, but they were those kind of kids that, you know, that if they, if they bought in and had a fun time at the very, very minimum, then we would have produced great um, consumers of agriculture products. So I had these girls and I remember they were wonderful. They were super popular and they did all these other events and they were on other sports team, but they loved FFA too. And so we needed them to have an SAE. They wanted one, but they didn't really have time, but they had a job at a, a snow cone place. And we started talking about how that's food science. Now, I think some advisors will argue that like just working at food service alone at a McDonald's at whatever does not count. And, and there's merits of that argument back and forth, but the way that we got their state degrees and they got their hours was they would work occasionally unpaid hours um, if they got to work early by mixing different flavors and practicing the marketing of those flavors. And then they would see how they did. 
So it, you know, when I presented this to other people, as you know, state degrees have to be approved by other teachers, you know, it wasn't the same as just, they were slinging burgers, which is, you know, good in its own right, but they, they were truly working on food science, agriculture, marketing, even agriculture communications. And so uh, we had all kinds of scenarios like that, where if the students were willing to work, then we were willing to make it work. And, and we often were able to do that. Um, last question here, being in an urban environment, uh, what were the, like the perceptions of your program, either from the administration, other students, the public, any, any different, like compared to a school that would be in a rural environment? That's the funny thing about a, an urban school is the perception is completely different in the school than it is outside. So in the school, we were the, the, the farmers, the country, the redneck of the school, they thought that we were the most, you know, they, that they could pick any crop or bring any animal and our kids would know what to do. Now that was, that was great. I mean, you know, we, when you, when a school knows there's an ag program, they assume, you know, it all teacher and student, you know, and I'm not a plant person. So like, I never really could contribute to that. But then if you looked outside, anybody in the ag community would assume we know nothing. So it literally would depend on who you ask. And, and I did try my best to combat the assumption that just because a kid lives within the zip code of a city versus the zip code of a suburb or the country, there is not necessarily an inherent level of agriculture knowledge. And somebody could grow up, you know, and I did grow up rurally and we had chickens and we did have animals. And so I, I feel like I had a a pretty well-rounded minimal agriculture background but you know I grew up beside somebody who lived out in the country you know was 30 minutes from a Walmart we didn't have a stop sign but they didn't have animals so they didn't know either and so that was my whole point that I often tried to combat was you know having a certain address does not make you any less likely to be wanting to be involved in it and it was just that we had to break down those barriers so one of those big things was, you know, trying to always show, and it's the typical, what everybody does, you don't have to just be a farmer. There are so many opportunities where you could wear dress clothes every day and go to work. And I remember one, one um, example I can give that's a great success story is Amber Graves, who's now married. Uh, so her last name's Weaver, Amber Weaver. Uh, she was our chapter president. She did choir and chorus. So she was super involved, but she came, you know, from a suburb and a, a family that just, she had cats and, and that was great. But she liked ag, but she knew she'd want to really be out in a field. And I remember one day literally telling her, you could wear a dress every day to work if you worked in something like ag communications, because, you know, it takes not just the people doing it in the field, but, you know, maybe one day you would work for RFD TV and report on conventions and get to talk to farmers and ag kids and all this. And uh, that's when she had told me that her realization that agriculture has so much more career-wise was an option. Uh, and she does today work for RFD TV. She's a producer. She does stories about ag kids, about farmers and all kinds of great stuff. And it just took somebody explaining that, like, seriously, you don't have to just plow a field or, you know, have a barn with cattle in it uh, to be a farmer. So it was really just opening up those experiences. I will say, and, and, and there's dark parts of this story that, you know, I think certain people have heard and that can be told in a, in a proper forum, but Honestly, there were times that we even faced, you know, the perception of our kids outside when we would go to FFA things was a little difficult. I had to warn our students that they wouldn't look, they wouldn't sound like, they wouldn't be dressing like the majority of the other students. And 
there were times that we faced situations that um, were difficult and that targeted my students and, and we worked through those and I think it built their character, you know, as best they could. There's, you know, I wish I could have prevented that, but um, it's funny, you know, when you, when I think about the big difference too, if you're somebody who likes modern music and you would know the references, you know, they they play big green tractor at convention and they'd play, um, you know, all the, all the songs that mention FFA and th those would get a pretty good, you know, reaction by all the kids. But when they play a Drake song, you know, my little cohort of 25 <laughs> to 50 kids at convention, you, I, I know I could find them if I didn't know where they were sitting, because when the beat dropped, they were the ones that were standing up and nobody else was. So, you know, there were challenges, but that also made us really unique and stand out. And I think ultimately I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Well, um, I'd just like to thank you again for doing this interview. Uh, and I think that we've gotten some really good information about how, even though it's in an urban setting, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's any, there's any detriment to being in an urban setting. I mean, it's how you make your program and how you want your program to run. So I think that was some really helpful information that you provided for us. And so now we'll get back to the rest of the podcast. We've just received some excellent information about running an urban agriculture program. We need to go over the highlights. We have seen that this is a very culturally diverse program that exists in this urban environment. However, it doesn't really matter where the students come from. If they care about agriculture, they get to be a part of the program. We also got to hear about their lab spaces and how they had to use some creative things about making the last places they have into things that relate to the career world. And even though they're in an urban school, they still get enough funding to get the materials they need to have an adequate program to teach their students. We also got to hear about some creative SAEs in the urban environment. I don't think I've ever heard of, an, of a food science SAE just like the one that we talked about in the interview. And also the perception of the program. People might expect that kids in an urban area because because they live there, have no idea what agriculture is. And maybe they don't have a full up picture of what maybe a country idea of agriculture is, but they can still be a part of the industry. As we have seen from the uh, student who went on to be in ag communications and still is a part of agriculture, maybe just not the traditional sense of the word. So even though they're in an urban environment, they're still going to learn about agriculture and they're still going to learn about the importance of the industry and even go to careers that focus on agriculture. So let's take a step back and just look at how similar and different these programs are. On a range of scale of how much they are integral to the culture of the school, the rural environment seems to be that ag is a, is a more accepted part of the school because that's just the environment that it's in. The school is K-12 and has a culture that has been surrounded by the ag program. That is actually the school that I went to in high school. I was able to see that everything that we did, events or anything that happened in the school, the ag program would always help with it. Uh, we were always part of the school and we were always receiving a lot of support. We didn't really have to prove ourselves because we were already so integrated into the culture of Eagleville. However, as you keep going up the scale, you see that maybe the schools don't know as much about the ag program and don't really know whether it's important or not. Seen in the urban school where 
the program wasn't even going to keep going unless Miss Lumpkins had been there to fill the position. But through their work and showing that they are important and that they can achieve a lot, they're able to show that, hey, ag is important and it can be a great focus of your school. And that even though it may have a select group of students, it's still going to show that your students are learning and being prepared for careers in the field. We also see that maybe SAEs are a little different where students in a rural are actually working on a farm or as opposed to suburban, they may be using their jobs and finding creative ways in their jobs to explore agriculture. And in the suburban environment, they're maybe just having to work in the school, in the labs, but still be able to put, be a part of agriculture and have a full and worthwhile SAE. Also, the perceptions of the program seem to be pretty similar throughout the rural, suburban, urban. They're seen as the farm kids or the kids who have already been on agriculture for a long time. And so you can't join unless you've done that. And so it's something that we have to make sure as teachers that we're letting our students know and the school know that agriculture is open for everyone who has an interest in it. You don't have to have grown up on a farm or have animals or have a full row crop operation to be a part of the ag program. And we need to encourage our students and let them know that they can find creative ways to be a part of agriculture, even if they don't want to be in the traditional industry field. So even though these schools are in different environments, I think that from what we've heard from the teachers is that they're still going to learn agriculture and they're still going to learn about how important it is to society and the world. And as teachers, wherever you may end up teaching, your program is what you make it. If you're going to put value into agriculture and let your students know that there's value in agriculture, then it doesn't matter whether you're in a rural, a suburban, or urban setting. And as you can see, they're all still salads. They may have different ingredients, but they're all still a salad. They're all still the same thing. They're all about making students know that agriculture is an industry full of career opportunities and that it's important that they go after these career opportunities because agriculture is vital to our society. And as teachers, we have to make sure that our students do know that. So this was the salad course. And I want to thank you for dining with us today. And I hope that you come back next time. See ya. This podcast was created and produced by Jake Duke as part of a senior thesis project at Middle Tennessee State University. Accompanying each podcast are learning guides that will give focus to the important information of each episode. Thanks for listening.